Let us pray. Lord Jesus, as we follow you in the power of your Holy Spirit at work in our lives, open our eyes to see your presence and your work in our midst and give us the joy of serving as your disciples and as brothers and sisters one to another. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As we suggested last week, the Gospel of John uh, is, it it, it just begs to be read at a deeper level. There's almost always more to the story than just the obvious meaning on the surface of the text. They're not merely to tell us what Jesus did. They are intended to convey the deeper meaning and significance of Jesus' life. When you read John, part of what makes it interesting is asking, is there more to the story than meets the eye? Who is this man Jesus. How does he affect my life? And what does he ask of me? I hope as you journey through this Lenten season, reading and rereading the Gospel of John, you'll be asking these questions and potentially even discussing with one another what you see there or what you suspect might be there. In John, the miracles are called signs. A sign points towards something. Scholars often refer to John 2 through 12 as the book of signs. And in fact, there are seven miraculous signs in the gospel. And one of the things we want to recognize in the scripture that that the number seven generally has a deeper significance. When you hear the number seventh, what you What you hear is the the symbol of completeness, wholeness, including on the seventh day of creation, and including here in John where we see there are seven signs, again, causing us to think about the fact that a completeness has come. And so we look at these seven signs and these miracles and ask, how do they appoint, how do they point to the identity to the significance of Jesus and his life. And so we start with the first miracle, the the wedding at Cana, this first miraculous sign. And I remind you that when uh, often uh, heaven is alluded to in scripture, it's pointed to as a wedding where the church is the bridegroom and I'm the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. And so instantly when we recognize that this first miracle is happening at a wedding, we recognize that we should pay attention to what is happening here. Now, wedding banquets in uh, that day, in Jesus' day, often lasted for seven days as a a celebration of a wedding was a a massive thing for both family and the community uh, in which that celebration was happening. You can imagine that there was a lot less work done in that week as people continued to come together to celebrate this 
wedding of this family. In John, we hear about uh, the promise of Jesus uh, where he says in, verse, in chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you and then I will come and return to you and bring you to myself. That's an illusion of what happens with the wedding. The, the engagement happens and then the, the, the groom goes back to his father's house and he builds on an additional room where he and his bride will then live. And once that room is built, he goes and brings her to himself and the celebration takes place. That seventh day again. And so in this story, in this wedding, there's a serious problem. They ran out of wine. I've had many conversations with youth people in the past. With Joe when he was here as youth leader, with Anna Marie, and with all of my previous youth directors. Coming from my own youth directing experience, the one thing you don't do at a youth event is you don't run out of food. And I've tried to communicate to Carolyn that in the Lutheran church there is a serious problem because we have added to the unforgivable sins blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, running out of coffee. You don't run out of coffee. Well, those are jokes, of course. But the fact of the matter is, it was a serious problem when a wedding ran out of wine. It was a significant embarrassment to the family. And so when Mary comes to Jesus and she makes this announcement, they're out of wine. She's communicating that there is a serious problem here for this father, for this new bride and groom, for this community. I'm not really sure of the significance of Jesus saying to his mother, uh, my time has not yet come, but clearly he responds as if, in fact, his time had come, or at least that he is going to point to it because she of course does not give up as most mothers are wise enough not to give up when their sons are a little slow to take up their you know suggestions uh, speak from experience what she says to Jesus is this actually she doesn't say it to Jesus she says it to the servants she says do whatever he tells you Do whatever he tells you. So what about us? Should should we ask this question as we're reading this text? Who are Jesus' servants today? As we read this text, who might Mary be speaking to from this text today? Us. We are Jesus' servants today, and so perhaps we want to hear from the mother of Jesus to us saying, do whatever he tells you. That a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we're asking ourselves the question, what is Jesus saying to us, and to be encouraged to do whatever he tells us. And then we look at what Jesus says to the servants 
as he points to these six stone water jars used for Jewish cleansing ritual that hold about 20 or 30 gallons. And we have to ask ourselves, especially in John, why all the detail? Why didn't Jesus say, hey, see those jars? Fill them with water. No, they are jars used for Jewish ritual cleansing, and they carry 20 to 30 gallons. Is there significant to this? Is it possible that we're going to hear in this story a difference happening between the ritual and the following of Jesus. It goes further because not only are we told that they hold 20 to 30 gallons, when Jesus says to the servants, fill those jars with water, what we hear in the text is that they fill it to the brim. Some of you have experienced the pastor barista. And you have noticed that when I fill the cup, I tend to fill it to the brim. And some of you have been, uh, you know, exposed to the fact that when you do that, it overflows. They filled it to the brim, to the point of overflowing. There's an abundance of wine. They've gone from having run out of wine to now having an abundance abundance of wine. And then we learn that it's not only that, but this water turned to wine is better wine. It's not the common wine, especially that they would keep to uh, serve later in the party when, you know, people have already had plenty and they're not quite so discerning about the flavor anymore. This is the best wine. Jesus can take that which is ordinary and transform it into that which is extraordinary. We learn in this text that Jesus came that we might have life and have it in abundance as we believe in him. So Jesus cares about this community, about this bride and groom, about this father of the bride. He invites us as his servants to do whatever he tells us, and he offers a life that isn't just ritual, but it is abundant, it is overflowing, it is a joy shared in community together and celebrated together. And so we, St. Timothy's, we live in this season, we live with this daily question. What is Jesus asking me to do? And as his servant, am I seeking to do it? Now, I want to just interrupt myself at the risk of having a long sermon today because I'm going on to the blind man. But, but I want to interrupt myself just to say this. One of my convictions as a pastor is that it's not my job to tell you what to do. 
It's not my job to tell you what Jesus tells you to do. It's my job to proclaim the gospel so that by the Holy Spirit, you, through hearing the gospel and reading the scripture and paying attention in prayer to the promptings of the Spirit and your brothers and sisters in Christ, can discern what Christ is telling you to do. And so if you hear me telling you what to do in a sermon, ask me a question because you've probably misunderstood or I have misspoken. But if you're not hearing me ask you to seek to hear the voice of Jesus in your life and follow that light, do what he asks you to do, ask me about that as well. The text says it clearly as well. It says this, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This power of Jesus to take the ordinary and make it extraordinary, to take our lives of sin and set us free and make us children of God, is a part of what it means to put our trust in the one who is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the head of the church, the bridegroom of the bride. And so we turn then to the ninth chapter of John. And one of the things we discover is that this story of the blind man in the ninth chapter of John takes up the entire chapter. And that's a lot of real estate for a single story to be explained in this gospel that covers the whole of Jesus' ministry. And we should pay attention to this idea that this must be critically important if, in fact, it's taking up this much space in the gospel. It begins in this telling of the story of the healing of the blind man with this very important question from Jesus' disciples as they look at this blind man on the road and they ask the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, I know that many of us would say, we don't think that way, to which I want to challenge you because I think you do think that way. As a matter of fact, I don't necessarily think you think that way in judgment of others. Oh, that person's a sinner. God is punishing them. I think you think that way regarding yourself. Something bad happens and you say, what did I do to deserve this? Is is this God punishing me for something I did in my life? And that's not leaning on the grace of God. That's asking some questions about punishment. Jesus, I love it, in this text, he kind of sets them right. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned that he should be blind, but rather that this is going to create an opportunity for the glory of God to shine forth. Brothers and sisters in Christ, did you hear that? How, how how do you hear that? 
do you hear in that response the possibility that when your life is a struggle, when you have hardship coming, that there's an opportunity in and around you for the glory of God to shine in and through you? True story. One of the two men who helped to launch Desert Hope in its early days, and a man who served as our treasurer, Russ Grisanti, early on after the, the, the launch of that congregation, uh, uh, was discovered to have esophageal cancer. Whew. Tough. He struggled with that cancer for it was at least six, it might even have been eight years. The amazing thing about Russ is no matter how many treatments he went through, no matter how many prayers and, and laying on of hands and anointing with oil for healing he went through, he used his cancer treatment as an opportunity to bless and care for and witness to his fellow cancer patients and those who took care of him in all the various facilities in which he found himself. I was visiting him one time. I was sitting in the room, and, and one of the, let me just call them candy stripers. You know, this is kind of a volunteer, usually a high school student, who, who just kind of goes around and tries to be a little bit of a blessing to the patients to kind of lift them up. And when she walked into the room, he asked her by name how things were with her boyfriend. Because in a previous conversation, before I was in the room, she had shared this issue that was going on, and he remembered her name, and he remembered her struggle, and he had been praying for her. And when she walked into the room to bless him, he used the opportunity of being in the hospital to be a blessing. And I will tell you that story is reminiscent of many, many stories where the people of God in the midst of the struggle have discovered it as an opportunity to let the glory and goodness of Christ be shared. It's a witness that I remember uh, with great depth. And I also want to remind you that later on in this chapter 9, even the verse we didn't read this morning, in verse 34, this is what the Pharisees say. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Jesus, when asked the question, who sinned this man or his parents that he should be born blind, said neither. The Pharisees assumed that he was a sinner from birth and should not be listened to. See, Jesus was trying to remove that kind of expectation, stigma, understanding, worldview from his followers and from the religion of his day. It also, by the way, tells us in this chapter that those religious leaders had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus as Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. 
they decided even before they sort of took this case to trial, because, of course, Jesus healed the blind man on the Sabbath, and you know that's breaking the rules, which proves that Jesus is a sinner, which proves that God would not listen to him, which proves that nobody who listens to him and pays attention to him or believes in him should be allowed to continue in the community, but rather should be excommunicated. Essentially, a threat that says, don't believe in Jesus or you'll pay the price. The, the blind man's parents were asked a few questions and they were skirting the side. They, were, they, they weren't saying, that, well, yes, he is our son. Yes, he was born blind, but, but who healed him? Ask him, he's of age, he can speak for himself. They wanted to stay out of trouble. So what do we do with this question of blindness? Do we perhaps remember the Old Testament words when the condemnation is given of the people when everyone did what was right in their own eyes? Do we recognize that the man who was born blind is given sight and those who supposedly have sight, the leaders of the community, are shown to be blind to the truth of God. And oh, by the way, there's more to the story because in the healing of the blind man, Jesus does something that I think is extraordinarily gross. He spits on the ground. Gross enough already, right? I mean, only an uncouth person spits on the ground. I mean, come on. And then he, like, mixes it with the dust and dirt on the ground. Now, imagine you're a blind man, and you hear Jesus spit. And then you kind of hear some crunching of dirt, and then you feel the mud smeared on your eyes. I mean, what is that all about? I mean, we already know from many other places that Jesus has the power to simply speak and heal. So what's the deal with the mud and spit rubbed on the eyes? And he's not done yet because then he says, with the mud and spit still on the guy's eyes, go and wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. And so we want to ask some questions. Why all the detail? Especially this gross detail. What's going on here? Is, is it possible that, that what we're hearing in this story of healing is again an illusion that takes us back to the Genesis account that we heard in the first chapter? That we're reminded that, that we're created from dust and now this blind man is healed from dust and Christ? It's also intriguing that he, his healing, his, his sight is returned when he is raised up out of the water. And I want to suggest to you as you read the Gospel of John that you pay attention to the water. For Jesus is the water of life. For the water of baptism is significant 
in the Gospel of John. And I want to suggest to you, the baptized people of God, that when we come up out of the water of baptism, even as a baby, splashed on our forehead, if you can call what we do splashing. That was a joke. Thank you. That we too are given the light of Christ. We're too given the Holy Spirit and the ability to see and hear the voice of God to guide and direct us in our lives. Now I also want to suggest this possibility that in both the story of wine and the story of blindness, uh, Jesus asks for something to happen. He asks the servants to fill the jars with water and when they do, Miracles happen. He asked the man whom, on whom his blind eyes he put spit and mud to go wash yourself. And when he does, miracles happen. And I want to suggest to you that you not simply believe in the power of God to do miracles, but that you believe in the power of God to do miracles through your obedience, through your service, that God chooses to make his power work through his people, through his church. You have the power of God at work in and through you. Don't minimize what God is able to do through you. Don't say when you feel God calling you to do something, I'm not qualified, I'm not able, I don't think that makes any sense. Why should I bother to do that? Say, yes, Lord. I am your servant, born to do your will. And watch just as God worked through Mary to encourage Jesus to lead the servants to create the joy and celebration of wine and avoid the embarrassment at a wedding. That God will use her example for us to humble ourselves in obedience, to bring the joy and celebration of life in Christ to our world and to allow the blind eyes to see the truth, the goodness, the love, the power of redemption, the power to give us life in and through the church. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We too were blind, but now we see. Jesus is, and we are, the light of the world. Thank God that we can see. Thank God that we can receive it and believe it and do whatever he asks unto life abundant. Amen. Please stand.